This podcast was recorded before any knowledge of the coronavirus outbreak. When I was asked to do the Shelburne, I wanted it to feel quintessentially Irish. And a lot of people said, no, you can't do that, it has to be international. And I said, no, no, the point is people love Ireland and they want to come to this hotel, which is the hotel in the whole of the island of Ireland. And um, it needs to feel like it has an Irish identity and you need to celebrate it and love it and embrace it and be part of that. So in a way, it took a sort of foreign, you know, a revist um, Irishman to come back and say, this is the way we're going to steer the project and the identity. And they thankfully let me. Hello, I'm Carol Annett from Country and Townhouse magazine. Welcome to the House Guest podcast, where I chat with experts from the world of interior design and decoration, the people behind the houses, hotels, shops and brands you see in glossy magazines like ours. If you listen on the Entail app, there's more information and images on the projects and people mentioned. And if you're doing up your own home, Hopefully you'll pick up some tips for yourself. Today I'm sitting with Guy Oliver above a shop in Conduit Street, a very beautiful shop has to be said. We're sitting above the Lalique store in Conduit Street. Guy Oliver has shaped the look of iconic London hotels like the Connaught and Carriages and most recently the Shelburne in Dublin. He was also a consultant with André Ballage, Chateau Marmont fame and the Mercer. So hotels is very much in your blood, Guy. But I, what I was fascinated by you was a quote that I read about your father um, whose disappointment that you left the Royal Navy to become an interior designer was alleviated by the fact that you appeared in Rugby World. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary start for an interior designer. <laughs> when I, I always wanted to be a creative, but I was conscious. My father was a policeman, and um, a senior policeman, but he was a policeman. And there was very much this machismo around the world. So anyone expressing a desire to be a creative was not fitting the plan. So I played rugby since I was nine years old. And yet inside I was thinking about chintz and fabrics and all those things as well. So, so but that's uh, lovely, but they're not incompatible. Why shouldn't you? No, exactly. I don't know why they don't do a nice chintz uniform for the England rugby team or the Scots or something. Um, so, and where were you playing your rugby? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, well, where did I grow I was moved around. We moved around a lot with my father's job. So every time he was promoted, we were moved. So I lived in, I went to four or five different schools and we moved around the place. My mother when we went I went to ended up at school in Stirling in the middle of Scotland and I was put in the wrong year of the school there was an administrative error and I was put in the second year instead of the first year which was absolutely fatal because everyone formed their groups and cliques by then and I was a sort of target for, <laughs> for everybody um, when I went there which created resilience and independence but it was quite a rough um, a friend of mine, who, the only friend who I still keep in contact with from that, that period, said it was a bear pit, and um, it was, but um, it taught, taught life skills, I suppose. So. Do you think that's what made you a better rugby player as well, because you just got in there? Yes, and I mean it was, and also learning that you can let it all get on top of you and you can evaporate or you can fight back, and I had to fight back, and the Navy turned up at my school by accident, it was an officer recruitment uh, team and they were, they were lost, which I guess was a good, <laughs> good sign and they were, couldn't have been further from the coast, Stirling is in the middle of Scotland 
and they just turned up and I'd finished all my exams early because and I was still 15 15 and a half years old and the headmaster sent me they didn't know what to do with me because I'd finished my exams so I went to see this presentation and the navy were mortified and they invited us all on what's called an acquaint trip and they a week later we were flown out to Lisbon and taken back on an aircraft carrier to recite and this admiral said to me you'd make a bloody good naval officer and I was very prone to flattery at the time, having been sort of beaten at school. And so I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. And he said, we'll pay for your university. And, um, and so six months later, I'd sort of gone through my Admiralty interview board and was going to Dartmouth. And I was 16 and a half, 16 and three quarters. And also some of those naval college bases are quite extraordinary buildings. Well, the Dartmouth, I mean, at one stage they were trying to turn it into an hotel and that would be the, a great crime. It was this fantastic building built by Ashton Webb who did all that arrangement outside Buckingham Palace during, during sort of peak of empire. And the Navy, of course, was the, is the senior service, is the sort of, was the way that they projected power. And so the officers' training school in Dartmouth sits in the middle of the hillside in Devon, overlook, commanding this view over the town. And there's this fantastic art collection inside the, the building, the captain's, I remember being in the captain's dining room and there was a turner on the wall. <laughs> and it was this sort of period of confidence. And when you go there, even though it's a bit sort of tired around the edges, you do feel sort of uplifted and special being able to attend that place. And it's the most incredible, I always had these dreams about the architecture and the sort of, it was very inspiring to me to be there and the history of what was there and when I left the Navy I wrote and applied to the Prince's um, School of Building Arts, the Prince Royal Institute of Architecture. So first stop was to do a, um, a, I, got a I, I got an apprenticeship at a design firm in Aberdeen. I was also working in a bar. I wrote to this design, to Colfax and Fowler through a, an introduction that a friend had made and um, I also wrote to apply for the, the course of the Princess Foundation. So I ended up working at Colfax and Fowler for a year. And then I was let go because of, I wasn't, um, let's say it didn't, my boss was a bit um, confused about his role. Um, and, <laughs> and, then, and then I went to the Princess Foundation um, um, a year later. So I was the second year of the course and I won a bursary and it was sort of miserable defeat for me in a way because I'd sort of gone into the best design firm in the UK and then I was kind of let go because of something nothing to do with my design abilities and then um, and then I was a student again mm -hmm. so I was literally on a 32 pound a week bursary I had holes in my shoes and I used to walk to the college and I, I was um, going to Harry Krishna's for my lunch and my, my supper every day. I love the Harry Krishna's. I don't know I anything about the their religion. Great. The food's quite good there. I <laughs> good used to curries. Talk in there, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and rum bubbers, weirdly. Um, but, but it was a very, um, yeah, they were great to me. And I kind of lived um, through being entrepreneurial about where I could get free food and for about a year and a half. And it was very bizarre because there was this fantastic education and they they introduced us to amazing artisans and artists stained glass artists and wood carvers and stone carvers and that's always been integral to my work so I've always tried to have bespoke elements and bespoke details that are special and unique um, and that to me is true luxury it's something that's unique and made to measure in French say sur mesure and that, that I think that's a lovely sort of way of encapsulating 
luxury without it being pretentious. So your parents m- moving around and doing up houses, and so you would, you visited markets and yeah. antique shops and things with them. Yeah. And then you, your love of design just just it grew. grew. It was just innate. Them. Yes, and so I. I loved going to flea markets and, and antique fairs and things. And at the time, most everything's been hoovered up now because there's television series and auction television programs and everybody's looking for something. But at that time, you could find things in flea markets or antique fairs. And I learnt as a sort of nine-year-old that if I understood a hallmark on a piece of silver and I identified it and cleaned it up, that it, something that I may have bought for a pound or 50p could be worth 15 or 20 pounds and so it was kind of motivator for a young child and I used to study the hallmarks and all the porcelain marks and all of the elements and so getting to know things and getting a specialist knowledge in the decorative arts was was um, sort of a foundation I guess for all of that and appreciating the quality of design and, and detail. So. You sound like you was a bit of a loner really. Yeah. <laughs> There's a funny photograph of me which I may be able to pull out even sitting in the corner <laughs> at home and I um, when I'm sort of I don't know a year old or something and I'm playing quite happily and my mother always used to say that I would always go off and do my own thing and then that was always coupled when I grew up with having much older friends so there was a fantastic woman when I was in school called Miss Jean Millen Adam who was a sort of formidable character and she was probably my closest friend I was she was in her 70s and I was 12 you know and so <laughs> this woman would tell me stories about going to China to collect plants for Kew Gardens in the 1930s or whatever it she was doing and I was fascinated because I was sort of hoovering up all this knowledge from her and I was really desperate to sort of understand and, and um, learn from these people and I have this sort of I my staff always say I've got a bit of a photographic memory which I do for interiors and details and decorative arts and so I was always trying to gain knowledge that way and glean sort of knowledge and I was always very comfortable with much older people because I thought it was a waste of time talking to a lot of my contemporaries because they didn't know the stuff I wanted to learn about. I wanted to learn about the things I loved so it was always from older people and that was part of part of that I suppose. <laughs> and what about Andre Ballage? Tell me about how that relationship Evolved. So over the past, oh gosh, ever since I was a student the first time at university, I, got, I was very interested in the history of architecture, history of art, and I always was involved with these campaigns to save buildings. And there was a very peculiar group at Edinburgh University called the Portico Society. And that's um, where you did your masters? Yes. And we stood in front of bulldozers when this um, house called Mavis Bank, which was a William Adam house, which is pre-Robert and James Adam, was getting going to be demolished. And this man, this at this ridiculous man had given a room each of this property to different members of his family around the world so it couldn't be compulsory purchased and then he issued a demolition order he just was going to demolish it and now it's been restored you know so 20 years later it's all but it it, it just incensed me that this built heritage was going to be destroyed because somebody was just randomly wanted to remove it and it's not his he's a steward he's a guardian he's not it's not his to destroy i mean yes he owns it but the people who built it and the artisans and the community around it, he shouldn't be allowed to do that. So I've always had that strong um, idea and there was a building around the corner of my office just on Savile Road called Fortress House and it was designed by someone called William Curtis Green and his most famous buildings are the Dorchester and the Wolsey 
restaurant, which was the okay, Woolsey Car Showroom. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. Car Showroom. It was a bank as well. It's, okay. it's had various morphed sort of periods, and it's also now currently a famous brasserie. Um, but um, this was his best work, and I went. It was owned by someone called, by Leading General, and I knew from my experience that these decisions are usually financial. And so I went to Legal and General and said, how much do you want for your building? And they said, I said, it's worth 75 million on your books. How much do you want? And they said, you give us 100, you can have it. So I said, okay. So <laughs> I went off and a friend of mine who's a developer, I sat with him, I said, how do we make this building worth money and fund it and the rest of it? So we worked out a scheme to purchase it for 100 million, to sympathetically restore it and extend it and create a hotel called the Savile on Savile Row. And the best and most famous hotelier at the time was Andre Village. So I wrote to him and I met him and I've always found it easy to get to people. And suddenly he said, okay, I like this idea, let's do it. So he came back and said, we've got 180 million pounds. We've got 100 million to buy it, 80 million to restore it and refurbish it. Let's do it. So I go to Legal and General and I say, we've got 100 million pounds to buy your building. And they say, um, thanks very much. We're gonna put it on the market. And I learned my sort of second big sort of lesson in life, which is get an exclusivity. <laughs> and, um, so the story didn't end then. It got bought by an Irish group called D2, which, is, which turned out to be Deirdre and David from Dublin, um, which links neatly into the shop. And these guys were developers who didn't understand or care about the history of the building. And I found out where they were. I called their office. I found out that this lady, Deirdre was Foley, was staying in a hotel in London. And I sat in reception and waited to see her. And I said, look, you bought this building for 105 million. I can demonstrate a way that you can retain it and make profit and make this wonderful building. And they did not care. They wanted it to be um, a, an office building premised on a very high rent, 120 pounds a square foot. They demolished the building and destroyed um, what I think was one of London's best examples of 1930s architecture. And, um, and then uh, they, they built offices which they couldn't let and then they went bankrupt. Um, so it was this pointless exercise of destroying the built heritage of our city. I mean, go and build modern buildings in Canary Wharf or wherever there isn't anything, yeah. but don't destroy the core and the heritage of our cities, which give and define the character of why people want to be in London. And so that taught me a few lessons. Anyway, it formed a, a relationship with Andre, which was a positive thing. I was also made a trustee of Save Britain's Heritage and I've been involved with them ever since. And we've had several wins, one of which was saving some buildings on the Strand, um, saving these terrace houses in Liverpool, the Welsh Streets, which were going to get wholesale demolished and have towers put there. Um, Smithfield General Market, which is an extraordinary property, which has now been saved. The C City Corporation wanted it to be more offices um, and we it's now going to be the new Museum of London so that hideous building which is the Museum of London is going to be demolished and they're building an office there great doesn't matter and they're saving the market thank god and that was an amazing win for us. read that you did when you started you first were asked to work on Connaught you said you didn't want to work on it because it had such a strong identity yeah it was like an old people's home and <laughs> people used to go there to die 
And um, it was. You know, Excuse me, I don't go to the Connaught to die. I go to the Connaught to go and have a nice glass of champagne and you sit do in the now. bar. And... Yes, you do okay, now. Okay, fair enough. But there used to be a thing called the American Bar there, which was very charming but empty. And there was also this idea. So there was sort of, you know, it had sort of rusticated for 30 years and people were still paying. Rusticated? Yeah, That's a just, great word. <laughs> they, um, people were still paying the same rate that they were paying 30 years ago and it was unsustainable. And the, there were sort of external cables, you know, those red, yellow, green, yeah, red, amber, green lights, you know, outside old offices in the 70s, you know waiting, come in, you know, lots of things. Had those outside every door. So there were letter boxes. There were these weird hooks for hanging up your dry cleaning. And you know those sort of weird chairs you see in National Health Hospitals, the sort of green vinyl, the high chairs, which they put potties under and things like that. They had some of those dumped in the corridors because someone had died and they just left it there. And it was just like this hideous, hideous mess in the building. And I said, I said, what are you doing? I said, oh, we're going to do 30 rooms in the corridors. And I'm like... There's, there were 96 rooms. And I said, I can't do that. It's just, yeah. you need to do, the whole thing needs doing. And So when was, this is what, in 2004? 2007, 6, 5. So, uh, yeah. so 7 was when it started, so 6, 5. So 5, 2005. Yeah. And I went round and I said, I can't. I was sort of offended because I'd worked at Claridge's and I loved, Claridge's was like the glamorous, you know, Art Deco flagship. And then they sort of took me to the old people's home where I was like, <laughs> what have I done wrong? Did I offend you or something? And, um, and then they sort of slowly, there was a lovely woman called Geraldine McKenna, who was the chief executive of the Savoy Group at the time. And there was another guy called Jean-Jacques Pajon, who was something else, similar, similar sort of, um, you know, status. And they said, come on, you can do this. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. It's too awful. It's too weird I don't want to get involved with that it sort of damaged my reputation and then they slowly slowly cajoled me and it ended up turning into doing the whole building but then I thought about it more there's nothing really that survives intact from that period as an interior so that grand staircase which is in the middle of the building was built by Sir Blundell Maple who was Maple's wearing and Gillow's department store and a lot of his furniture which I assume he couldn't sell was also in the building and then there was a lot of art. And it, what was nice about it, the difference between the Connaught and the Shelburne, was that the Shelburne had had all of its antiques and paintings taken away by previous owners. The Connaught had somehow still retained everything. So, But just not in a good way. Yeah, and so what was interesting was there was literally a day when they emptied the hotel out. So I was literally, they were pulling it out, I said, okay, restorers, junkyard, doom, doom, doom. and then I had to repurpose everything in the hotel and put it in places. So there might be the most magnificent wardrobe in some tiny room or some incredible, you know, Bombay-fronted commode that's sitting in a corridor that would look much better in their principal suite or whatever, and putting long case clocks on every landing and arranging it so it had an identity. Um, and then there was all this art that was around the place, some of mediocre quality, some extraordinary pre-Raphaelite paintings. And I tipped all of that to the core of the hotel and then made this identity. And when you go down the stairs, you see portrait of a woman, portrait of a woman, portrait of a dog, portrait of a horse. And you walk down and you see that as you're going down. And it's subliminal and the portraits of the Duke of Connor on each landing and everything. But it forms a sort of identity when you're going down. And people don't clock it, but they it feels familiar and comfortable as if it was over thus. So tell me about the Shelburne then, because that's, mm -hmm. I mean, that is also an iconic hotel mm. in Dublin, right by St. Stephen's Green. Yep. When were you invited to go and work there? So about it's five years ago now, um, 
the owner of the hotel who probably prefers to remain anonymous is a lovely man who bought it during the financial crisis and he was a regular at the Connaught and he loved the Connaught and um, some member of his team was dispatched to find me and um, I was invited to meet him and then I was taken out to Dublin to see the hotel and the Shelburne is Ireland's Connaught you um, have Irish roots because your grandfather was yes. Irish. Yes, so thank goodness my grandfather was born in Ireland in 1921, two Irish parents, and I now have an Irish passport, which particularly with what's been going on politically, you may gauge my preferences there. And when I was asked to do the Shelburne, I wanted it to feel quintessentially Irish. And a lot of people said, no, you can't do that, it has to be international. And I said, no, no, the point is people love Ireland and they want to come to this hotel, which is the hotel in the whole of the island of Ireland. And um, it needs to feel like it has an Irish identity and you need to celebrate it and love it and embrace it and be part of that. So in a way, it took a sort of foreign, you know, a revist um, Irishman to come back and say, this is the way we're going to steer the project and the identity. And they thankfully let me. And I think you'll find that the owners, the operators and the guests are pretty happy with the result. And if, I think the nice thing about it when you walk through the door, it feels established and yet somehow still relevant as well. So it's, it's an amazing place. And you've brought all sorts of different characters in that. Um, tell me about the mural that you did in the, is it in the 1824 bar? Yes. So on the mezzanine when you walk in, there used to be the most hideous chandelier that hung in front of the staircase so you couldn't actually see up the stairs when you walked in and um, in fact previous owners if it had moved they put a chandelier on it and, um, <laughs> so, so there were chandeliers of dubious quality everywhere and I identified 19 Waterford 19th century chandeliers in the hotel and moved them around and put them back where they would be seen to the best advantage and removed a lot of them and so one of the things I did was remove the chandelier at the bottom of the stairs and put two lanterns either side of the stairs to frame it so you could see up. And on that mezzanine is the old smoking room and we created this, what was initially a residence bar but it's now, through demand, has become open to everybody, um, a bar that's called the 1824 bar. And I wanted it to feel integral to the hotel. So there's a big mural by Paul Slater, who's a brilliant artist. Um, I'm not quite sure how old Paul is at the moment, but he's quite senior gentleman and he's been a friend for 20 years and it's his biggest work so he painted in everyone from Arthur Guinness, um, Angelica Houston, um, Sister Stan, Sister Stanislav, she's an Irish figure. And Angelica Houston's father, John Houston. Directed he, Ryan's daughter, yeah. And, and so Angelica Houston, she grew up. She grew up in Ireland, she comes to the hotel and my former business partner David Laws um, decorated the house for John Houston. So there's this other threat. So there's an Irish relationship in some of the clients that work for. So on the private houses, um, David worked for Tony O'Reilly, who latterly owned Waterford Wedgwood, but was an Irish rugby international. Um, I worked briefly with Susan O'Reilly in, in London, and then um, David worked at Castle Martin for him, and also at Clarence for John Houston. So there is this Irish thread in the business, and it's nice that that sort of, history is continuing in a way and to me the Shelburne is is Ireland in a way it's Ireland, the, the Lord Mesange is Ireland's drawing room I mean you'll see at any time of year of course the tourists from America and that's principally the push for a lot of the tourism but 
you know, farmer and his wife coming up from the country have champagne tea or all the relatives come through at Christmas. It is mad when you're in the reception at Christmas. And I was I was mentioning to friends that you'll see nuns, farmers, uh, American film actors, Bono, you know, they're all crossing <laughs> through. And um, it's kind of a, it's a cool place. And it, it's, in Irish terms, it's central to Irish culture because it's where the Irish constitution was drafted. And it's central to the history of the hotel and also in 1916 the Easter uprising happened in St Stephen's Green outside the front door which is Dublin's Central Park and President Hyde before he was President Hyde witnessed this uprising and he wrote in his diary what is this ruckus going on who are these people in 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 the square and of course it was that Easter uprising and there's characters like Countess Markovich who was a Gorbuth who was this um, family that sort of saw the problems with um, you know, an occupying force, the British, in a country that felt occupied, and she was one of the rebels in the in the square, and she celebrated as this character in the hotel. She took pot shots at the building, um, and there are bullet holes. When we were restoring the facade, which was a three and a half million pound project, there were bullet holes in the chimneys and things like that. And those are the from this nineteen sixteen uprising. They'd fired at the hotel because the hotel was where a lot of British officers state was stationed and so that's all part of this whole story and then when they chose a place to write the constitution so you know Michael Collins and all of these characters who were in the in the hotel they chose the the Shelburne and there's a the second copy of the draft is in the hotel and um, on the grand staircase which is at the back of the hotel um, there are four large windows um, and Coincidentally, there are four provinces in Ireland. <laughs> so there's Ulster, the troubled one, which is six in the north, six counties in the north, and three in the in the Republic, and then Connaught, Leinster, and Munster. And um, we, the owner, allowed me to commission a large stained glass window with all the the shields of all the counties for the whole of Ireland, and at the same time get rid of the hideous curtains that have been put in there by the previous incumbents. <laughs> and so there's this lovely. Uh, I guess it's a celebration of the work, the investment that he made in the building. There is this amazing stained glass window on the grand staircase, and I think people will enjoy seeing that and identifying wherever they're from and Ireland or where their relatives or ancestors came from. It sounds absolutely lovely. I wanted to um, just read a quote by you because I think it just kind of brings together all the everything that you've been talking about. We are all products of our age, but good design is good design. It should be intelligent, seductive, sometimes whimsical, and always inviting. And I think that that it, it sounds to me that that's very much what you've created at the Shelburne. And I think anyone that goes along and can experience it for themselves is going to have a jolly good time. Yeah. Thank you, Guy. Thank you so much. Okay, very happy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to House Guests from Country and Townhouse magazine with me, Carol Annett. Don't forget to subscribe to the series on iTunes or Entail, where you can also find images, links and notes to enhance each episode. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Carol W. Annett. And keep up to date on all the podcast news and show notes online at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash podcast. And please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe.